0: This is your Prophecy Update with host John Holler.
1: Okay, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thanks so much for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises that you gave us through prophecy. Ones that we can look back and see have been fulfilled. And ones that we can look forward to and know with certainty that they will be fulfilled. Just as you uh, said through your prophets. Bless us this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I'm going to call this uh, New World Order 2.0 simply because uh, it was the only thing I could think of at the last minute. It was probably the last thing that I did before I walked up here was try to think up a title. But uh, as we'll see, there is a push by certain people to take advantage of this current situation that we have with this coronavirus in an attempt to control uh, or put in place certain agendas that people have that I do think fit within the scope of Bible prophecy. We talk each week about the convergence of events, and I think we live at a time where more things are converging and happening more quickly than almost any time uh, in the last 2000 years. It is a a very strange world. It's almost surreal. I um, was able to get out this week and drive around a little bit. I actually, uh, uh, golf seems to be accepted from the lockdown uh, orders, and so I was able to play golf a couple times. I actually bought gas for 97 cents a gallon over in Springfield, Ohio. Uh, which is good, but you know. And related to that, uh, somebody said, "Well, gas should only cost 50 cents a gallon if gas is down to $11 a barrel of oil." And I'm like, "Well, you got to include state taxes, which in Ohio are about 38 or 39 cents a gallon, and then in, um, so and you have to add in refining costs because it doesn't come out of the ground as oil. It's a very complex thing, and we'll talk a little bit about the oil price, but just let me. Start with this verse from 2 Timothy chapter 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 warned continually about not being deceived. Now, one of the things that uh, I've noticed. Uh, over the last couple weeks, with this virus thing, is that um, there are plenty of opinions out there. And everybody is sure about their opinions. And there are cases where some of the opinions, I think, are certainly within the realm of fables. But everybody seems to adopt them as their opinion. And if you don't adopt their opinion, then you're not as holy or as informed as they are. And it's a it's a concerning thing. So we live, not only is there a convergence of events, but there is a division in society and a division within among people in the church, between people in the church, that is really starting to get unlike anything that I've ever seen. And I'm talking about conservative evangelicals are fighting it. So sometimes I think there's a, I'm sure there's a disinformation campaign that's going on on both sides of this issue to get people at odds. And it seems to be, from my perspective, it certainly certainly seems to be working. So today we're going to talk about this. Now, this has nothing to do with anything I'm talking about. I just thought it was a really cool graphic that I saw. And uh, I think it was in Israel, My Glory magazine. But it does sort of indicate that you can, you can hear the hoofbeats of things that are going to unfold in greater detail with what's going on. So let's just look at a couple things now. So we'll talk about the coronavirus, some economic things, and we'll talk a little bit about Israel at the end. Here is um, an article that I wanted to reference in Harvard Magazine written by a PhD educator talking about the risk of homeschooling. And listen to some of the things that this author said. It's Professor Aaron O'Donnell. I believe she's a professor at Harvard or she's an, a, a graduate of Harvard. But she's a good example of someone who's been educated beyond uh, the point of common sense. She referenced Elizabeth Barth Bartholet, Washington, public interest, professor of law and a faculty director at the law school's child advocacy program at Harvard University, who sees risk for children and society and homeschooling and recommends a presumptive ban on the practice. Homeschooling, she says, not only violates children's right to a meaningful education and their right to be protected from potential child abuse, but may keep them from contributing positively to a democratic society. Quote, we have essentially unregulated regime in the area of homeschooling, Bartholet asserts. All 50 states have laws that make education compulsory and state Constitutions ensure a right to education, but if you look at the lo- legal regime governing homeschooling, there are very, very few requirements that parents do anything. The practice, Bartholet says, this Harvard Law professor, can isolate children. She argues that one benefit of sending children to school at age four or five is that teachers are mandated reporters, required to alert authorities to evidence of child abuse or neglect. Teachers and other school personnel constitute the largest percentage of people who report to Child Protective Services, she explains, whereas not one of the 50 states requires that homeschooling parents be checked for prior reports of child abuse. Even those convicted of child abuse, she adds, could still just decide, I'm going to take my kids out of school and keep them at home. As an example, and she goes through and she cite some examples from things. She had an article published in the University of Arizona Law Review. And she says this. This is this Professor Bartholop. Bartholop maintains that parents should have very significant rights to raise their children with the beliefs and religious convictions that the parents hold. But requiring children to attend schools outside the home for six or seven hours a day, she argues, does not unduly limit parents' influence on a child's views and ideas. She says, the issue is, do we think that parents should have 24-7 essentially authoritarian control over their children from ages 0 to 18? I think that's dangerous, Barthollet says. I think it's always dangerous to put powerful people in charge of the powerless and to give the powerful ones total authority. Now I would note that this drips, first of all, I wonder what planet she lives on, that she assumes that parents have as much access in the short time they have the children at home after the end of a school day when they have homework that they're going to have the same amount of influence the teachers are going to have in six seven or eight hours per day it doesn't make any sense and i will say this from my experience and we don't have children but some of the most engaging young people that i've ever met in my life have been children who have been homeschooled Uh, They can converse with adults better than most kids from the public schools because that's who they spend their time around is adults. So Bartholet concludes with this. She concedes in some situations homeschooling may be justified and effective. No doubt there are some parents who are motivated and capable of giving an education that's of a higher quality and as broadened scope as what's happening in public school. But Bartholomew believes that if parents want permission to opt out of schools, the burden of proving that case is is that their case is justified, should fall on parents. I think an overwhelming majority of legislators and American people, if they looked at the situation, would conclude that something ought to be done. And this is always an appeal to authority and power beyond what you really have. And I don't think she's realistic, but it does show that she assumes that the only thing that happens in homeschooling is indoctrination in a particular worldview, but I would submit to you that what happens in public schools is an indoctrination in a particular worldview. She just doesn't like that particular worldview, and this is what happens with people on the left. They assume that they're smarter than you are and that they have to protect you, and they have to protect, always protect the children, the precious children. Now, this week, we had a special event, the resolution adopted by the General Assembly that this was in honor of International Mother Earth Day. Now, I was in high school back 50 years ago when they had the first Earth Day. I remembered that some of my friends and I, we were sort of Skeptical at this ridiculous thing, living in a town with, that was filled with operating steel, mil, steel mills and other industry and coal mines close. The whole thing seemed rather ridiculous to us, so we each made a pact that we would uh, borrow our parents' cars or drive our own cars to school that day rather than walk like everybody else did. But I don't remember it being called Mother Earth Day. That's what's interesting. And if you look at this, so the U.N. has all of these International Days and on their website, they say International Days are occasions to educate the public on issues of concern, to mobilize political will and resources to address global problems and to celebrate and reinforce achievements of humanity. The existence of International Days predates the establishment of the United Nations but the UN has embraced them as a powerful advocacy tool. We also mark other UN observac- observances. And you can go to their website and you can see all the days and years and weeks that they had, months that they have on their international observance calendar. But um, here is uh, some of the language from, the re- from this resolution adopted back on 22nd, April 2009, acknowledging that the Earth and its ecosystems are our home and convinced that in order to achieve a just balance among the economic, social and environmental needs of present and future generations, it is necessary to promote harmony with nature and the Earth. Recognizing and I didn't really realize that they did this 11 years ago, Recognizing that Mother Earth is a common expression for the planet Earth, in a number of countries and regions, which reflects the interdependence that exists among other among human beings, other living species, and the planet that we all inhabit. And so here they have Mother Earth Day now, which is clearly uh, pagan Gaia worship, Mother Earth worship. Adopted full bore by the United Nations. Now, Secretary General Guterres issued a short statement on Earth Day. I want you to see how he sort of ties what's going on with this virus to Earth Day. Here is Secretary General uh, Guterres' message on Earth Day.
2: On this International Mother Earth Day, all eyes are on the COVID-19 pandemic, the biggest test the world has faced since the Second World War. We must work together to save lives, is suffering and lessening the shattering economic and social consequences. The impact of the coronavirus is both immediate and dreadful. But there is another deep emergency, the planet's unfolding environmental crisis. Biodiversity is in steep decline and climate disruption is approaching a point of no return. We must act decisively to protect our planet from both the coronavirus and the existential threat of climate disruption. The current crisis is an unprecedented wake-up call. We need to turn the recovery into a real opportunity to do things right for the future. I'm therefore proposing six climate-related actions to shape the recovery and the work ahead. First, as we spent huge amounts of money to recover from coronavirus, we must deliver new jobs and businesses through a clean, green transition. Second, where taxpayers' money is used to rescue businesses, it needs to be tied to achieving green jobs and sustainable growth. Third, fiscal firepower must drive a shift from the grey to the green economy and make societies and people more resilient. Fourth, Public funds should be used to invest in the future, not the past, and flow to sustainable sectors and projects that help the environment and the climate. Fossil fuel subsidies must end and polluters must start paying for their pollution. Fifth, climate risks and opportunities must be incorporated into the financial system as well as all aspects of public policy making and infrastructure. Sixth, we need to work together as an international community. These six principles constitute an important guide to recovering better together. Greenhouse gases, just like viruses, do not respect national boundaries. On this Earth Day, please join me in demanding a healthy and resilient future for people and planet alike.
1: Well, there he laid out the global agenda in six easy to remember points sustainable development. Greenhouse gases are just like viruses. They don't respect borders. I would also suggest to you, I could show you picture after picture of city after city and place after place on the planet, that with all of these national, international world lockdowns that are taking place and reduce human activity, we have the world that the globalists want. Nobody's working. Everybody's sitting around. Everybody is stressed out. This is the world they want. And it doesn't work and it's not working. And uh, there. But again, it is typical of the leftist agenda, the globalist agenda, they're probably synonymous in many respects, to never let a crisis go to wake. So we have a coronavirus crisis. I think it is a real crisis, but we have people bringing in their other crisis, global climate change. It's interesting that like I said they never let a crisis go to waste to bring up your other pet peeve crisis. Now with regard to this coronavirus response there's a lot of discussion I think Pastor Steve talked a little bit about this first hour about how do we deal with this what what are we going to do when we open up how do we track people how do we know who's infected who's not infected and that type of thing. And there has been a big push by Google and Apple and other tech companies to provide data to the government about in some countries where people will say, well, they did pretty well with regard to their response and reduce the number of cases and deaths and that type of thing. But a lot of times what they did was they instituted pretty draconian, pretty draconian measures to put people under control. So, for example, you're going to have this app. This is from this morning's Boston Herald COVID 911. You'll have an app and it will tell you if you're around people who are have been infected or tested or may have their immunity certificate and they'll be tracking everything. And as we've noted in other cases where they've put these in place in a particular country, It's very easy for people to figure out, even though they say privacy, 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 it doesn't mean anything because they'll say, well, you know, somebody in apartment 2E uh, or apartment 46F on the 46th floor of a building in Manhattan has been diagnosed. And it's pretty easy to figure out who the person is that lives in that particular thing in that particular apartment. So it's going to be a problem. It's going to invade privacy. And I think these are all precursors to some even more draconian things that will come in the future. And I've often said that when these things come along, it will be sold to everyone as this is a very, there's a practical reason for this. This will be a very good idea. And we do, you know, nobody wants to get this thing. It has caused a lot of problems. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But one of the people that's been pushing for this uh, response on the coronavirus, as you know, is Bill Gates. I would suspect that if um, Bill Gates... Retired to his one of his many homes or bunkers um, or his yacht. Uh, I assume he has a yacht. He and his wife just bought a $43 million oceanfront home around Carlsbad, California this week. So he doesn't the virus is not going to shut down. The virus shutdown is not going to have that big of an impact on him. He's going to get to go to his different places. But he has all sorts of ideas as to how we're supposed to do this. But I I want you to see that there's even a conflict, I think, developing between Bill Gates and other people that are trying to do this. Now, what are the things that Gates does? And he has a there's a big editorial that he did in The Washington Post on Friday. Here are the innovations we need to reopen the economy. He's big on testing. He's big on vaccines. He's big on digital immunity certificates of some kind to show that you're immune and so in one of his articles he's one part of this 18 page paper pandemic one the first modern pandemic he says this and i just want to quote for him uh, because i think sometimes he is misquoted but um, i don't agree with his agenda but i do think he deserves the right to be quoted accurately so this is what he says in this paper for now the united states can follow germany's example interview everyone who tests positive and use a database to make sure someone follows up with all their contacts this approach is far from perfect because it relies on the infected person to report their contacts accurately and requires a lot of staff to follow up with everyone in person but it would be an improvement over the sporadic way that contract tracing is being done across the United States as an even better solution would be the broad voluntary adoption of digital tools. For example, there are apps that will help you remember where you have been if you ever test positive, And by the way, your phone will remember everywhere that you've been. It will remember everywhere that you've been better than you will remember everywhere that you have been. If you have ever test positive, you can review the history or choose to share it with whomever comes to interview you about your contacts. And some people have proposed allowing phones to, be, to detect other phones that are near them by using Bluetooth and emitting sounds that humans can't hear. If someone tested positive, their phone would send a message to the other phone and their owners could get tested. If most people choos- chose to install this kind of application, it would probably help some is what he said. In connection, uh, in addition to that, in his article, it is reasonable for whether this behavior change was necessary. Overwhelmingly, the answer is yes. Have we overreacted is, is the question. It's reasonable for people to ask whether this, the behavior change was necessary. Overwhelmingly, the answer is yes. There might be a few areas where the number of cases would never have gotten large numbers of infections and deaths, but there was no way to know in advance which areas those would be. The change allowed us to avoid many millions of deaths and extreme overload of the hospitals, which would have increased deaths from other causes. The economic cost that has been paid to reduce the infection rate is unprecedented. This is an accurate statement. The drop in employment is faster than anything we have ever experienced. Entire sectors of the economy are shut down. It is important to realize that this is not just the result of government policies restricting activities. When people hear that an infectious disease is spreading widely, they change their behavior. There was even a choice to have the strong there was never a choice to have the strong economy of 2019 and 2020. Most people would have chosen not to go to work or restaurants or take trips to avoid getting infected or infecting older people in their household. The government requirements made sure that enough people changed their behavior to get the reproduction rate reproduction rate of the virus below 1.0, which is necessary to then have the opportunity to resume some activities. Now, one of the things he advocates in this is testing, digital certificates, You can download the paper if you go to the Washington Post website and other websites that link to this editorial that he wrote in Friday's Washington Post. There will be a link to download his 18-page white paper. One of the things he advocates is digital certificates. He also talks about what is the Gates Foundation role going to be. In normal times, the Gates Foundation puts more than half of its resources into reducing deaths from infectious diseases. These diseases are the reasons why a child in a poor country is 20 times more likely to die before the age of five than one in a rich country. We invest in inventing new treatments and vaccines for these diseases and making sure they get delivered to everyone who needs them. The diseases have included uh, include uh, HIV, malaria, tuberculosis, polio, and pneumonia. Whenever there is an epidemic like Ebola, SARS, or Zika, we work with governments in the private sector to help model the risk and to help galvanize resources to create new tools to stop the epidemic. It was my it was because of these experiences that I spoke out about the world not being ready for a respiratory epidemic in my 2015 TED Talk. Although not enough was done, a few steps were taken to prepare, including the creation of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, which I will discuss below in the vaccine section. So he goes on, he wants this thing. And and the belief is that if you've been exposed to the virus, uh, you will develop antibodies, and therefore it's free for you to go around because you're no longer at risk. The interesting thing is is that there's an article today, this is in many places, this just happens to come from the uh, Delhi India version of the Hindustan Times, and it says here who warns against immunity passports as nations look for ways to exit lockdowns and so what we have is the the world health organization has now come out and the world health organization has been uh, consistently wrong on a number of these things they originally said we didn't think there was person-to-person spread they've they've always been very pro-china the head of the world health organization is a a radical Marxist rebel from Ethiopia, very much, I think, in China's pocket. But what they're coming out today is they're saying is like even though we're doing we want to exit these lockdowns, we want to get everybody back to work, we don't know that it's going to work because there is a problem that we're not sure that people actually develop immunity once they've had the disease. And so therefore, if they don't have that immunity, immunity passports even vaccine, having received the vaccine digital certificates, may not be adequate. So what the World Health Organization is saying is, we're going to have to do this for a long time until we figure this out. So there is a bit of a, I think, a bit of a, a gap between what Gates believes will happen if you get a vaccine and an immunity digital certificate and what the World Health Organization is just saying. This is a paper that was released Friday immunity passports in the context of COVID-19. And the concluding paragraph is this. At this point, this is what the World Health Organization said on Friday. At this point in the pandemic, there is not enough evidence about the effectiveness of antibody mediated immunity. To guarantee the accuracy of an immunity passport or risk free certificate, people who assume that they are immune to immune to a second infection because they received a positive test, result they ignore the public health advice the use of such certificates may therefore increase the risk of continued transmission as new evidence becomes available who will update this scientific brief so there is a dispute there gates also announced the other day this is from today's financial times That the Gates Foundation is now going to spend all of their time and money focused entirely on the coronavirus and how to respond to that. So that's what uh, the situation is. So, as I said, I think there's a bit of a disagreement between Bill Gates and the uh, World Health Organization over the efficacy of vaccines and immunity and digital certificates at the present time. They'll probably all get back on the same page. But for now... It appears that their uh, positions conflict a bit. Melanie Phillips has a uh, excellent article, I think, in her uh, on her website. Also came out Friday, talking about the ghastly mirror image of legal, lethal groupthink. I won't go into it in great details, but what she says is that on the far right, and she's conservative, politically, and on the far left, people they're all over the place and um everybody's blaming everybody else and she said it doesn't seem like there's a common purpose other than to prove that your particular view is right so on the one side on the right side of the political spectrum you have people concerned with liberty on the other side of the political spectrum you have people that are over concerned with health on the right side economics on the left they want government control on the right they fear government control and there's very, it's, from my perspective, trying to look at the broad spectrum, it's pretty much, it's pretty much divided evenly in the way things are, are going. And people are believing pretty much what they want to believe, even though sometimes it's supported by bad or non-existent science. I see this quite a bit. So the, um, she just noticed this, there's a couple paragraphs. Over the past several decades, I have often noted a noxious symmetry between the left and some of those on what is called the right. Despite the fact that they reach each start from opposite sides of a political spectrum, both end up putting the I before the we and trample rationality and common decency in the process. So it has prov- proved in this coronavirus emergency. From the left issue, from the left issue dire warning, dire predictions of incipient fascism or a police state over the restrictions on liberty being imposed to cope with the pandemic. From the right issue dire predictions on the of an incipient socialist hell over the restrictions on liberty being imposed to cope with the pandemic. And we also have plenty of examples of police um, enforcing these restrictions, which seem to be from a legal standpoint as a lawyer you could drive uh, a fleet of trucks through some of the the holes in these restrictions and they just don't make any sense and the police are sort of left i don't think the police are happy with it either so we we live in this very um divided world now everybody's at each other's throats nobody's happy everybody's tired of the lockdown And on the other, on one side, on the other side, people are concerned about what happens if the lockdown goes on. It's had a huge impact on the economy in the last four weeks. Jobless uh, toll has topped 26 million, another 4.4 million. This is in the United States. People have filed for unemployment this week. People cite other cultures like Sweden. I'll talk about that in a moment. Here's uh, just an analysis from Yahoo Finance by Chris Rupke, who is a financial analyst and economist, about his view, this is several minutes long, his view of the economic toll that's coming out of these shutdowns. Now, again, we have to remember that when China shut down for two and a half months, the largest industrial power on the planet now, and the main cog in all of these supply chains, People sent work to China because it's cheaper to get it done there. When that shut down, that disrupted supply chains on just about everything. And that unleashed a financial contagion, in my view, that was going to pop this economic, you know, this greatest economy in the last 80 years, which was this massive debt fueled bubble. And it was just waiting for something to pop the bubble balloon, pop the bubble. And I think that happened when China shut down. Now, it's certainly been made much worse by all of these restrictions on movement and lockdowns and that sort of thing. But it started with this. So here is uh, this economist's view of what's going on in the economy.
3: Well, I mean, the number we continue to talk about here are historically high when you think about how many Americans are now out of work Uh, And our next guest uh, has been saying that that surge in unemployment claims is almost guaranteeing a depression, a great depression, 2.0. And I want to bring him on for his thoughts on why that is. Uh, Joining us is Chris Rupke, MUFG chief financial economist. Uh, And Mr. Rupke, thank you so much for joining us. First, just your take on on the numbers that we're seeing on the jobless claims front and why you think that means uh, we're approaching another depression-like era.
0: Well, just going strictly on the numbers, we have come to believe that uh, the Great Depression in the 1930s, the unemployment rate was 25 percent. So that's kind of the marker we're looking for. If one out of four of your neighbors is out of work, 25 percent unemployment rate, that's a Great Depression. I mean, don't forget uh, the Great Recession we just had a decade ago. Unemployment only got to 10 percent, and now we're certainly going much, much higher than that.
3: Yeah, you know, on a weekly basis, we never saw jobless claims really even top 700,000. Uh, and now we're constantly running in the multi-millions here, too. So there are reasons there. But you kind of took it a step further in, in looking at the, the way that the stock market has been reacting to all this. Of course, we're well off those late March lows here when we saw uh, the market crash by about 35%. Uh, what's your take on the way that we have seen this recovery, though, and, and why you think investors might be getting a little bit ahead of themselves thinking that the worst is over yet?
0: Well, if you take a look at the downturn, as frightening as it was in in stock prices, you can, you know, after the fact, we can see that most of the big down days were uh, coronavirus count inspired, the number of new positive cases, what was going on in uh, like in Queens with the hospitals. And it, it was, you know, frightening. It was building week after week after week. And then the Federal Reserve jumped in. And uh, basically, the day they came out and said they were going to buy corporate bonds and do unlimited QE, March 23, that ended up uh, in happenstance being the the low for the market. So, you know, there's a pretty good technical uptrend here, but we we lost 38 percent, S&P 500, as you say. We've rallied back halfway. Now, what do you do when we're back halfway? I mean, for me as an economist although I do have a CFA many years ago, licensed to manage money. Um, As an economist, it just seems like the economy is very, very bad here. And it's it's worse than I've ever seen in my career uh, since the 70s. And I don't know if stock prices can really discount that. I mean, maybe they're discounting a 30% drop in earnings. That's possible. And then uh, things get back to normal at, At least by late 2021, but I mean, the economy is so bad, that's all I can think about as an economist, and I don't think stock investors realize how bad it is.
3: Yeah, I mean, it is, It is as we mentioned, historically bad when we look at the actual numbers, the underlying economic data. But when you look at the actual moves in the stock market, you're right in terms of, of discounting. The pain to come doesn't seem to be there. We had Tom Lee on the show a few weeks ago kind of highlighting the technicals here when we look at it. And counterintuitive as it may seem, it does look like when you go back and look at the historical down, downturns here, the recovery itself uh, is a function of how quickly you came down. So we entered a bear market... I'm- quicker than ever. It was a historical first. We look at how fast it happened. So the data from what he's looking at says that we should recover just as fast or at least relatively quicker than what we've seen in the past. And it has played out that way so far. So, I mean, as bad as the data is, he does point to the fact that stock market recoveries do generally uh, come before we see the peak. In uh, jobless claim data, we saw that back in three and '09. So maybe, uh, I guess, to your point, the, the market's pricing in that it can't get much worse from here.
0: Yeah, that seems to happen all the time. Anyway, I, I'm very much comforted by that analysis. I'll, I'll continue to leave all my money in the stock market, so thank you for that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a sarcastic response. And so th- the economies everywhere are tanking. Uh, China's economy is not doing that well. well. Talk a little bit about what's going on in Wuhan. But people say, well, Sweden didn't really lock down, but Sweden really did in some respects. So, for example, they shut down high schools, but not primary and intermediate schools. So kids were still going to school. Their death rate is much is higher. Uh, even though the number of cases are down. But they did limit gatherings to less than 50 people and that sort of thing. But for all of their efforts to not lock down, they've had a tremendous disruption to their economy. And even compared to some of their the Scandinavian countries next door, Denmark, Norway, and Finland, their economy is going to contract as much, if not more, they have already hit in a country of 10 million. They've already hit 700,000, 800,000, almost unemployed with the expectation that that could double in the very near term. So even though they didn't put the restrictions on, they are having major economic problems, which I think sort of support, supports my conclusion or my belief that the China shutdown unleashed financial contagion on the world, which was exacerbated by all of the lockdowns. Now, the area where it's probably most predominant is in the area of oil. Now, if you remember back to January when China shut down, and I don't remember which update I talked about this, I think it was late January, early February, uh, the last one in January, the first one in February, that oil uh, demand in China was cratering by 40 to 50% because they just shut down the whole country. That was a significant amount of world oil demand. So what happened was China, uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia, which are heavily oil-dependent for revenues in their government to operate their country, got into an oil price war. Russia kept pumping oil. Saudi Arabia, which sometimes will step out of the market voluntarily to help protect the oil price because they have a huge sovereign wealth fund. They didn't do that this time. They decided they were going to pump oil to protect their market share. So now you have two companies, two countries pumping oil, and it causes an oversupply of oil. It's very difficult. This is a map of Russia and where their oil fields are located. And you can see it in the lower left hand corner. You see Moscow. So most of the oil in Russia is north of Moscow. Now, one thing you know about Moscow is it seems like every time you see a video out of there, uh, people are wearing winter hats. It's pretty far north. It's cold there. But Siberia and other parts of Russia that are oil rich are even further north. And what that has the effect of is that it's very, very difficult for Russia in that weather environment to shut down oil wells. You just don't shut them down very easily. If you do shut them down incorrectly or the wrong way, you damage the well and you essentially have to start over when you come back, which is pretty expensive, particularly in the climate and geological conditions that they have so as this uh, graphic which comes from geopolitical futures and the accompanying article says russia's and climate russia's climate and geological conditions make it costly for the country to reduce output output unlike its competitors russia gets most of the output from bitterly cold environments where costs are higher due to technology needed to keep crude flowing into pipes and to keep gas from freezing in fact oil extraction is currently unprofitable in about 33 percent of russian fields The quality of Russia's reserves have been deteriorating for the past decade, and production is on the wane. Therefore, the most Moscow was willing to do in early March was to reduce output. uh, To reduce output was what it had always done to feign cooperation and scale up seasonal maintenance periods to slightly reduce output temporarily. In response, Riyadh, the Saudis, launched a price war. It started bringing its spare production online to see how much of oil it could dump on the market and to force Moscow to capitulate. Saudi exports grew by over a million barrels per day in March. The effect of creating oil prices at the same time that the Acronis virus crisis uh, economic consequences were becoming clear was enough to drive all oil producers back to the negotiating table. And they had some meetings with Washington, President Trump, they had a G, uh, OPEC meeting, they had an OPEC plus meeting of other oil producers, they agreed to reduce oil demand, but the problem was they only agreed to, agreed to reduce oil production by about 10 million barrels per day. The world has been going along for a while now around 100 to 105 million barrels per day demand. That demand has now gone down this month to down by 30 million barrels per day. That's a lot of oil. And when they were increasing production, it only made the situation that much worse. Uh, Foreign policy has a good article, the coronavirus oil shock is just getting started. And when you look at the way, uh, especially in the Middle East, the countries are dependent on oil to keep their populations in check. Uh, politically, so that the monarchs can continue to rule, they have a major problem. Oman is heavily indebted. Uh, Oman will uh, most likely have their debt declared junk, which means I guess it's a target for the uh, federal u s Federal Reserve to buy it. Um, Saudi Arabia has a problem. Russia and Saudi Arabia have pretty significant sovereign wealth funds. I think the Saudi Arabian so- sovereign wealth fund sort of their rainy day fund is about about 500 billion dollars Russia's is about 176 billion but with this drop in oil prices and everything and to fund their ongoing operations both Russia and Saudi Arabia could run out uh, if things don't change around pretty quickly they could run out of their sovereign wealth funds by uh, 2024 That raises the specter of what do countries that are in economic crisis. This will cause a major economic crisis in Russia. And what does Russia do to protect itself and its economy? At the same time, the all the Gulf states are having problems. For example, Bahrain is an oil rich sheikdom along the Gulf and that area and the contiguous area into Saudi Arabia is a Shiite Muslim area. Saudi Arabia props up the government of Bahrain, because Bahrain, which is run by Sunnis, but they have a Shiite population, they are able to keep control of that situation, and Saudi Arabia is able to control the Shiite population majority in its most oil-rich area. But once those funds start to dry up and they start having to cut payments, you're looking at major geopolitical disruption. In fact, as this um, this foreign policy article says, it is therefore not surprising that counter shocks to oil prices often trigger political upheaval. The sudden shift in terms of trade undercuts export revenues, budget stability and growth prospects. Fiscal crises caused by filing prices limit government's room for domestic maneuver and force painful political choices. The dilemma of defaulting on debt owed to foreign creditors imposing austerity on populations has been the cause of great political crises, some with geopolitical consequences. And they go through and they look at who's who's vulnerable in this particular situation. And they cite Russia. They cite Brazil. They cite Venezuela, Ecuador, North Africa, Algeria, Libya, All of these countries are in major crisis because of the cratering of oil prices that took place this week and that are likely to continue to the near future. Another country is Nigeria. Nigeria is in a major population growth mode, and last year they overtook South Africa as the largest economy in the continent of Africa. So we have a major problem. What happened this week was something that I think most people thought They would never see. On Monday, oil prices uh, for West Texas Intermediate. That's a grade of oil, comes from mainly West Texas. And if you look at oil markets, oil markets are divided into all sorts of different grades of crude. Uh, The better the grade of crude, meaning the less refining that you need to take impurities out to make it into something else like gasoline the better your price is gonna be. So Brent crude is considered the gold standard. West Texas Intermediate is another standard, but they have, Brent crude can be produced sometimes more easily. West Texas well, produced and got to market on the Brent crude side. West Texas has to, is landlocked, so it has to be transported by pipelines. And that's what led to this, this problem with West Texas crude. Was that West Texas crude went down 300% in one day? Now, this was on short term, soon to expire futures contracts, but the point was that those went, uh, they went down to a penny and then they dropped to about $37, negative $37 per barrel. This is something that has never happened before. Essentially, what it means is that if they were fulfilling that particular contract, the oil producer would pay you to take the oil away. Now, the problem is, where are you going to take it? Because you have to take it somewhere by pipeline. And there is, well, here's, this is from the Wall Street Journal. Collapse in oil prices deepens dragging markets down globally. Oil market goes into a tailspin with e- with sellers even paying buyers. U.S. oil prices plunge into the negatives. It was something that was like unthinkable that we've ever seen. This is an article from Arab News that shows how just over the last month the oil price dropped so dramatically and dropped really in two days from seven, two or three days from seventeen dollars a barrel, even twenty dollars a barrel, all the way down to negative thirty-seven with regard to this particular class of futures contracts on West Texas crude. Now, it's rebounded a little bit, uh, but everybody's looking at it and trying to analyze it. What's it going to mean? Now, part of the problem as to what happened is a geographic thing. So here's articles from the Financial Times, up 0 prices, crude's reputation as a safe investment. And you can see from the charts that they have, how the oil price dropped over just a very short period of time. Back in January, this seems like ancient history on a lot of issues right now. Brent crude was trading $65 a barrel. It dropped below $20 a barrel, which is a a price nobody ever thought they would ever see again. When you adjust for inflation, gas is now cheaper than it was back in the 50s. And that's before, you know, that's before the Gulf Monarchies started realizing that they had a fortune in the ground that they could um, get. So here's part of the problem. West Texas um, crude transits through pipelines. Lower left hand corner is Oklahoma City. Upper right hand corner is Tulsa. And about midway in between is a town called Cushing, Oklahoma. And when you look at Cushing, Cushing is a major pipeline transit storage space. All those white dots that you see around Cushing, and this covers a couple square miles, are storage tanks. Currently, storage in Cushing is 72% full. The remaining 28% is already spoken for. So all of that oil coming out of West Texas has no place to go. And uh, pipeline companies have said, unless you have a specific paid for contract at the other end, you're not putting your oil in our pipeline because you're not going to use our pipeline as a storage facility. So as a result, you have oil that's still coming out of the ground, but no place to go with no place to go and lower demand. The storage is filling up and Cushing will be full shortly. And we'll have even a bigger problem. Now, a lot of newspapers and stuff, uh, financial newspapers, have said that, well, what happened with West West Texas Intermediate crude on Monday when it dropped negative is a Cushing problem. However, that's not necessarily the case. It is a worldwide problem. World oil storage should be filled up by around the 1st of June. So now what they're doing is they oil producers are renting oil tankers. You used to be able to rent one of these bad boys for about $25,000 a day. And now it's costing $180,000 to $200,000 a day to have floating oil storage. Currently, there are more, there's more oil in transit to the United States from Saudi Arabia than any time in history. That's only gonna make storage problems worth. In fact, here's a uh, article from uh, the Wall Street Journal. I embedded a video here. This is a video taken by the Coast Guard the other day of oil tankers filled with oil anchored off of Long Beach. And these, these oil tankers are huge. They call them very, VLCCs, very large crude carriers. Some of them can hold up to 2 billion barrels of oil. And so you have off the port of Long Beach now, as of the other day, you have roughly 19 oil tankers anchored, waiting to unload their oil. You can look at other maps and you can see some places have nine oil tankers, some have 10, some have five. There are oil tankers anchored off the coast of countries all over the world because there's no place for them to offload the oil as a result, the uh, VLCC carriers, the very large crude carriers have up their rates, as I said, up to one hundred and eighty thousand to two hundred thousand dollars per day. That's expensive storage by any stretch of the imagination. And the problem is that nobody knows when it's going to change because demand has cratered. They're shutting down refineries, so they're not even taking crude oil in. And we have a major problem. Now, for a lot of people, cheap oil is good because it costs less to operate things, but it causes geopolitical upheaval, as I've said, and it's even causing some problems in Israel where they have some natural gas and oil reserves that they're trying to bring online. But as the price goes down, deep sea drilling and that type of thing is very expensive oil. So in the United States, whereas it was touted recently by President Trump and accurately touted, that the United States was energy independent. We had, we were producing more oil than we used. First time in history, that was because of the shale oil production. That is pretty much all shut down now. This is from the Wall Street Journal, below zero oil is a chilling event. People in the oil business are like, we, we don't know what, we just don't know how to understand this. Airplanes, you know, 90% of the aircraft, commercial aircraft fleets are pretty much grounded. All the big aircraft that would use a lot of oil, they're using none, and it's hard to adjust the supply chain. To you know, I worked with a company once that made jet refuelers that they sold all over the world. I remember they were selling some to Kazakhstan, They I had to send a fax to a town in Kazakhstan. I had to look it up to make sure I always I knew where the state of republics were, but I, I didn't realize how big the country was. But all of these countries are very dependent on oil, and this is just causing disruption everywhere. The Financial Times has a very good article the other day, Will shale rise again? Shale oil's not coming back anytime soon as long as the price is cratered like this. When the price is down at twenty dollars, It costs more than double that to get shale oil out of the ground. And so if you're only getting $20 a barrel or $10 a barrel, you're just going to shut down. And so when you look around, I know people have told me in western Pennsylvania where they have these drilling equipment yards. They're packed now with drilling equipment because the shale oil companies have pulled everything in. This has a big impact on the economy in Ohio and western Pennsylvania. Uh, I've run into people that have retained oil shale oil rights on their properties. They might have a farm or two that they've assembled. And some of them were bringing in one or two million dollars a month in royalties from the shale oil. And all that's gone now. So that has a big economic impact. This is really unlike anything I think that we've ever seen. As this article notes, asking OPEC to help save the U.S. oil sector was not part of Donald Trump's vision of American energy dominance. The U.S. president's president's role in brokering a deal between Saudi Arabia and Russia to end a damaging price war was intended to prop up oil. Instead, the deal fell flat, unable to overcome the collapse in global demand due to coronavirus. And with it went the shale revolution that transformed the U.S. into the world's top oil producer. The defining moment arrived on what traders have dubbed crude's black monday when u.s oil prices plunged below zero for the first time leaving even hardened oil executives wondering how a business forced to effectively pay customers to take their oil could even recover here's what one oil producer said if i go out of business or shut wells it's not just me it's the five guys who service the wells truck the oil lease their trucks and the community that depends on their tax dollars. Senator Ted Cruz essentially said the other day, he didn't essentially said, he said, Saudi Arabia, turn your boats around and take the oil back. We don't want it or need it. And that's true. So we're filling up our strategic reserve. It's about 80% or more full. It'll be filled up pretty soon. I think we can put about 780, 780 to 800 million barrels in that. And that's that'll be gone. And, you know, these oil it's amazing how many, you know, to get 100 million barrels of oil per day to everywhere that it needs to go. I often view the modern supply chain and logistics as a bit of a uh, miracle. So now we're talking about what, what are we going to do? The economies are cratered uh, in the U.K. There was this U.K., one of the ministers in the U.K. warned that discussing how to ease the lockdown is irresponsible economists cover this week after the disease the debt and so whatever debt there was before that fueled a big economic growth is now on steroids and the u.s alone is approaching 50 percent of its annual gdp in recent debt just over the last couple of months we used to complain about trillion dollar deficits and i don't remember the exact number the deficit this year is now projected to be three to four times, three to four trillion dollars. One trillion, everybody was on the conservative side, we used to jump up and down about that. Now we're at three to four trillion, and people are asking the government to do more. One person that seems to be celebrating this collapse is Alexandra Acacio cortez AOC. And she said this she deleted some other tweets about hey you know don't go back to work and this is a problem with the economic recovery uh people that own restaurants have said look i i can't hire my people back and pay them what i was going to pay them i might have been paying them 15 dollars an hour to be a cook in my restaurant but now with the benefits and the stacking of benefits that they're getting they're making i would have to pay them over 25 dollars an hour for them to come back to work and i can't afford to do that so one A lot of restaurant owners have said, I'm not going to open until all these extra benefits cease. And everybody says, well, why aren't you opening back up? And they're like, we operate on a shoestring anyway. And so a lot of times, you know, very moving article in The New York Times the other day by a lady who shut down a restaurant that she had for 20 years, 13 employees in the East Village. And she just said, I can't take the stress anymore. I tried to apply for a loan. Loans have gone to companies that shouldn't really have gotten the loans. Some are paying it back. Some are not Harvard, even at Harvard, with its multi billions. 80 or 90 billion dollars in endowment got a loan from the SBA for um, nine million dollars. Now, I think they're paying it back or they they will be shamed into doing it if they have shame, although they don't like homeschooling. Um, they like the money that comes free money that comes from the government. So here's what she said this snapshot is being acknowledged as a turning point in the climate movement do you see what she did she did what guterres did they never let a crisis go to waste so here's the crisis in the economy here's the crisis with the virus and by the way we got to get back to climate change and controlling things fossil fuels she said are in long-term structural decline this along with low interest rate means it's the right time to create millions of jobs Transitioning to renewable and clean energy, a key opportunity. Listen, the foolishness of this person is stunning. You can go all over California where they're dismantling solar farms in Nevada. Part of the problem was they built them in the desert where there's sand. It's also windy, windy sand blows, it makes solar panels dirty. Solar panels that are dirty to be functional have to be cleaned. However, <laughs> you built them in a desert <laughs> where there is no water. So that's a problem. So they're dismantling them. And I see them tearing apart windmills even now. What do they do with these? Wind- they can't really refurbish them. They have to take them away and bury them. It's. An, I assume somebody will eventually come up with a way to recycle them like There's a pretty good business in India of taking old oil tankers and cutting them apart for scrap metal and that type of thing and then repurposing them. In fact, the the biggest carrier crude carrier ever was from 2009. I think it carried about two point six billion barrels of crude. It ended up in 2009 in India to be torn apart. So that's um, that's where we are. The other thing, too, is this um, I cannot divorce or ignore the fact that this coronavirus outbreak might have been intentional, maybe an unintentional bioweapon release that China decided to use to its advantage. There was a big trade war going on between the United States. They had negotiated a trade agreement, but the problem with the trade agreement, which made, made China meet certain targets, it has a clause in there that says In the event that a natural disaster or other foreseeable event outside the control of the parties delays a party from timely complying with its obligations under this agreement, the parties shall consult with each other. So in other words, here's an out clause for China. So would China intentionally crater the world economy to get out of this trade agreement to protect its economy? I don't know. So we have a major problem uh, with the economy. I don't think that it's going to turn around soon. Everybody wants to get back to work. Everything wants things to open. My concern is you have businesses that have already been open. Meat processing plants. What's happening to meat processing plants? Now, Smithfield, I know is China owned, but all the other non-China owned processing plants are shutting down their facilities. Tyson shut down, I think, the largest meat processing plant in Waterloo, Iowa the other day because people working in close proximity we're getting sick from the coronavirus. So what happens with and I think that's the. I'll call it what you want, the fear that a lot of business owners have restaurants, hairdressers, sal- hairdressers, salons, athletic clubs. What happens if they open up and people start getting sick at their facility? got to shut the facility down again, just like Smithfield did. So my recommendation would be, listen, there's going to be a disruption in the food and meat Supply chain, vegetables and that sort of thing as they try to adjust things. They've done pretty good so far, but there's about 14 days in cold storage. They're shutting down a lot of the meat plants for 14 days, and I think you're going to see a disruption. So, you know, it might be a good time to buy a little extra when you go to the store. So we have a lot of other things. So that's the coronavirus and world economy. Let's just look at a few other things that are going on. Iran the other day launched its first military satellite into orbit. It was successful. They've tried to do this in the past and they have not succeeded. So this time they were able to get that missile up there put into orbit and operational. That is a bit of a game changer. It makes Iran very arrogant. And there's been a significant war of words going on here recently between Iran and the United States. Now, the interesting thing is, when you look at the video of the launch, here's a, um, if you look at the launch vehicle, well, here's a better picture of it. You see the launch vehicle there in the foreground? It's blurred out. Why would they blur out the launch vehicle and all of their videos? And it's pretty obvious, and they obviously, because those launch vehicles are made in North Korea. Now, that brings up the issue of what's going on with North Korea. Kim Jong-un has not been seen for a while. His last public appearance was, uh, this was a photo taken at that, where he uh, conducted a meeting of the North Korean Politburo, uh, by the way, the one thing you will note about that picture is that it is all male. Around that table, North Korea is a very patriarchal society. Kim Jong-un does not have any brothers. Uh, he has a sister. And so the question is, who is going to, who's going to take over if something happens to him? And so here we have the rumors now that Kim Jong-un is dead in a vegetative state, taking a vacation. You have the rumor mill is going crazy with regard to what's going on with Kim. And um, nobody really does. Um, North Korea watchers say that they are seeing things that they've not seen before. Here's a satellite imagery of his... Uh, sort of a vacation resort compound that he has and his personal train parked outside Uh, nobody's seen him since april the 11th Uh, he was reported they would flew a team of surgeons or specialists from china to treat him but he was having a cardiac problem and apparently there was some kind of event this is one of the stories that's being told during that operation because the cardiac surgeon who had been trained in China. The North Korean surgeon was so nervous that his hands were shaking and there might have been a problem. And as a result, he's in a vegetative state. You'll see a lot of photoshopped images of of, of uh, Kim Jong Un lying in state. That's just taking pictures from his father's funeral back in 2000, 2009, eight or nine. And even when his father died, uh, it took four days before the truth really came out that he'd been gone. The only thing that was noticed was that he had not appeared at a special celebration where the leader of North Korea always appears. And when they pan the viewing stand, it was just the generals and Kim Jong Il. His father was not there. So when he didn't show up for the celebration, everybody said, "Uh oh, we have a problem." And so this is one of the things they do: is they uh, track satellite imagery. Uh, for example, here's the Kim wing of a hospital. Here's a clinic that he's at. Here's a resort that he goes to. And so they track and they look at all these images, and they see: is there a motorcade there? That must mean Kim is there, because he's the only one who uses a motorcade like that. It's a uh, big problem. Uh, one of the big news is this big news this week with regard to Israel is that Netanyahu and Gantz finally reach an agreement to form a unity government. Netanyahu will be the initial prime minister. Uh, That period might run for 18 months. Gantz was given certain portfolios in the ministers in the cabinet. I believe they increased the number of ministers to 36. (laughs) I'm not sure eventually they will get as many ministers as they have 120 members in the Knesset. Uh, eventually, I guess, to get people into a coalition, they'll just give them some sort of ministry and a salary to go along with it. Gantz got, I believe, he got finance and defense. Netanyahu kept transport, uh, maybe health and some others in his portfolio. They're supposed to switch in 18 months. There's a lot of people skeptical that don't like Netanyahu are saying, "Oh, Netanyahu's never. He's not going anywhere." Other people say, "I think Haratz, which is a left wing." Newspaper, they say, you know, Gantz really rolled Netanyahu in this agreement. Netanyahu still faces an indictment, but who knows when the courts in Israel open, just like who knows when the courts will open here in the United States. Got a notice the other day from a federal courthouse, the federal courthouse in Cincinnati. An evening security guard came down with the coronavirus. This is the problem with opening from the lockdowns. The security guard who roams around the building at night to check all the doors, He gets tested positive for the coronavirus, and they shut down the building for two weeks. So I think this is just going to happen as we try to do this. Now, interesting article in the New York Times the other day, and some related articles. Who warns Hezbollah that Israeli strikes are coming? Answer, Israel. (laughs) And so here's a video. If you could zoom back out, Brian, I'm going to show a quick video. The um, so this is what happened in the Golan Heights the other day. What happened was there were some Hezbollah guys in this vehicle and Israel fired a sort of a warning shot near the vehicle. When that missile exploded, the Hezbollah guys got out of their vehicle and said, we got to get out of here because the next missile hits the vehicle and we're meeting we're, you know, gone to meet Allah. Now, the interesting thing is, though, as traffic continued to go by, they figured out, oh, well, with the traffic going by, they're not going to shoot the missile in here now, so let's get our bags. (laughs) So they run back, and they get their bags, and then eventually what would happen, what happens, I don't know if it's in this video or not, uh, the vehicle is destroyed after everybody, make sure you get get my cell phone charger, would you? (laughs) And so they make sure they get everything out. And so Israel's tracking these guys. They know that they're there. And uh, get my charger cord. Yeah, okay. So, then they leave and boom, the uh, Israel destroys that. Now this leads to some controversy. Here's an article from Ashark al-Aswat. This, uh, uh, this is a Arabic-language newspaper published in uh, London. And it says, Israel warns Hezbollah to stay clear of its strike targets. It references the New York Times article, but also says is that this policy of sort of firing a warning shot at the vehicle, allowing the guys to get away, then destroying the vehicle, is there's a lot of disagreement in the Israeli government about this. The Mossad says, listen, they're terrorists. Just take them out. Don't give them a warning shot. And so and so but other people say, no, we we need to be careful with this. And if we shoot these guys, we'll start a war with Hezbollah. And the Mossad says, no, they're not going to start a war with Hezbollah. They'd be crazy to do that. We would destroy them in a couple of days. So why are you worried about that? We destroy all these targets in Syria of Iranians and that type of thing. And there's not very much in the way of retaliation that's done because they know that they would be destroyed in a war. So that's an interesting uh, thing that's going on. Also, because Iran has less oil revenue, what they've been able to give to Hezbollah is plummeting. So I only point this out because we know there's a war coming in the north, uh, but I think logistically right now, I just don't think it's gonna happen in the near term. But things, listen, things can change very quickly. Uh, Two months ago, everything in the world seemed pretty normal, except they were having some problems in this one province of China with doing this. There's been significant ramping up of uh, tensions in Libya. Turkey has been going in there to Libya. They're bringing Syrian fighters in from Syria in the area that they control. And Russia is also bringing in Syrian fighters from the Tiger Forces to fight on behalf of the opponent of Turkey. So Turkey supports one side, the, the Libyan national government, that's recognized by the UN. Russia supports the Haftar, General Haftar's rebels. And so they're both bringing Syrians in to fight a yet another war in Libya. And there were some significant developments this week. The Turkey-backed rebels made some progress. Just a couple more things. This is the beginning of Ramadan. It's a picture taken Friday from that large uh, clock tower that uh, is next to the Grand Mosque in Mecca. And you can see that it's virtually empty. Everything is shut down and even the Arab papers and stuff are saying, boy, a a Ramadan like no other. So we had a Passover like no other. We have a Ramadan like no other. We had a Resurrection Sunday like no other where everything is locked down. And there's very few people. I saw some pictures of some mosques where they were praying and they were all practicing social distancing during their prayers. Very unusual because usually they're lined up. But here there's virtually nobody at the Great Mosque in Mecca. The Hajj, I think, is going to be canceled this year. Uh, There's also problems with our college is going to come back. What's going to happen to their funding? Are people just going to say, why do I need to go to college when I can stay home and do things online? So this I don't think we really fully understand or will understand the economic disruption that's going to continue for some time in our economy. And this leads to people that you see people saying that just wish somebody had an answer doesn't somebody have an answer to what's going on it's a very very difficult public policy public health and economic uh, question it is I mean I I don't I can't begin to tell you the number of times I've heard people say this is unlike anything we've ever seen and I would say it's unlike anything that we've ever seen so far because <laughs> I think um, prophecy indicates that, it's going to get different. Or it's going to continue. So I'll just close with this. Tuesday and Wednesday are Memorial Day and Independence Day celebrations in Israel. Today, though, is also a very significant date in Israel history, the country of Israel's history. It is the 100th anniversary of an agreement called the San Remo Agreement that came out of uh, San Remo, Italy. Now, leading up to that, there were a number of developments. In 1915, there was a letter from a man named McMahon that was made to Sheriff Hussein in Mecca. Sheriff Hussein was the, I believe he would be the great-grandfather of King Abdullah of Jordan at that time, the Hashemites were in control of the holy sites in Mecca. They controlled those holy sites until about 19... the late 1920s, when this king Saud, later, at that time, he was just a tribal chieftain, took over the holy sites, kicked the Hashemites out, they went to Jordan. But prior to that, this is a letter from McMahon that he wrote about 1937 to the Times of London, saying, listen... I want you to understand, when I talked to King Hussein back in 1922, I didn't promise him the land, Arab land west of the Jordan, like where Israel is now, where the West Bank is now. It says, uh, it has been suggested to me that continued silence on the part of the giver of that pledge may itself be misunderstood, I feel therefore called upon to make some statement on the subject, by I could confine myself in doing so to the point now at issue. Whether I, that portion of Syria, now known as Palestine, was or was not intended to be included in the territories which the independence of the Arabs was guaranteed in my pledge. I feel it my duty to state, and I do so definitely and emphatically, that it was not intended by me to give this pledge to King Hussein to include Palestine in the area in which Arab independence was promised. So that was him confirming in 1937 what he had told King Hussein back in the 1920s. That then led to the San Remo uh, meeting in Italy, sponsored by the League of Nations. And at at that meeting, they decided that the land of Israel, if you could zoom out, the land of Israel, or this area, would be divided between, it would be called Transjordan, and it would all be done to create a country. It would constitute modern-day Jordan, modern-day Israel, including the area that they have misidentified as the West Bank, other than the fact that it is on the West Bank of the Jordan River. But what happened was, so in 1920, there was an international agreement that this land would be for a Jewish homeland all of it later in the 1920s britain carved off three quarters of that all of it east of the jordan transjordan which is now the kingdom of jordan and there was i don't think there it, that's the the point is that's the last international agreement that exists where everybody agreed how to divide up this land between West of the Jordan and east of the Jordan. So that's that's established international law and fact. So, uh, but that all that took place at San Remo, that conference—it was a seven or eight-day conference—finished 100 years ago today, and 100 years later, we still have a problem. Eventually, that problem will be uh, resolved. By the way, in April 2010, a ceremony attended by politicians and others from Europe, the U.S., and Canada was held in San Remo at the House where the signing of the San Remo Declaration took place. At the conclusion of that commemoration 10 years ago, it said this, Reinforming the importance of the San Remo Resolution of April 25, 1920, which included the Balfour Declaration in its entirety in shaping the map of the modern Middle East as agreed upon by the Supreme Council of the principal Allied powers, Britain, France, Italy, Japan, and the United States, and later approved unanimously, approved unanimously by the League of Nations, the resolution remains irrevocable, legally binding, and valid to this day. Ten years ago, that's what the countries that put this together in nineteen twenty said. And now they're still fighting over it. So um, when people tell you that, you know, there's no right to the land, nobody's ever agreed to it, to give this to the Jewish people, that's just absolute nonsense and a recasting of history. So we'll see how this goes. This is, uh, again, one of these things that just seems to be converging at the same time with everything else. So next week, I'm sure we'll talk more about uh, some things in the Middle East and also I'm pretty sure that this issue with the economy and the coronavirus will not be resolved in the next week and we'll be talking about it for a while. So let's pray and uh, get back next week. Father we thank you again for your word. Lord I pray that in this very difficult time, very stressful time to be alive that you would cause this to have people turn their hearts towards you and that they would look at the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, was crucified, buried and rose again for us on the third day and ascended into heaven and will come back again to reign as king. We just pray that people would accept that free gift of salvation um, for forgiveness of their sins and believe that Jesus Christ is their Savior. I pray that you would uh, give us opportunities to share that gospel. I would also pray that you will give people wisdom and uh, peace of mind in a very turbulent time uh, as they lose jobs, as there's, I see, increases in marital problems and suicides. Uh, people needing health care that haven't been able to get health care because everything's been shut down. We just pray, Lord, that you would bring some wisdom into this situation so these things can be resolved. Uh, Bless us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.